0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. Are you worried about democracy? I have to confess, I am a bit worried about democracy. That's why I listen to a wonderful podcast called Democracy Works. It's run by the fabulous people at the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. The podcast aims to rise above partisan politics and the daily news grind to take a broader look at issues impacting democracy. These are things we cannot ignore. You can go to www.democracyworkspodcast.com and subscribe in all kinds of ways, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many other places. We really love this podcast at the NBN, and so much so that we are going to provide you with a little taste of what you can get at Democracy Works. I hope you enjoy the following episode.
1: From the McCourney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Chris, today we're going to talk about an important topic that uh, people toss around but don't necessarily know the meaning of, and that is uh, demagoguery. Uh, yeah, and, and demagogues, right? So and demagogues.
2: <laughs> and, demagogues and democracy. Uh, right. And uh, with us today is... Uh, The the woman is going to be delivering the Kenneth Burke Lecture on campus, uh, Patricia Roberts Miller. She's a professor of rhetoric and writing and director of the Writing Center at uh, University of Texas at Austin. And she's uh, author of the the new and short and punchy book called Demagoguery and Democracy.
1: It really is short and punchy and uh, wonderfully readable.
2: In her book, she argues that uh, deliberation and demagoguery uh, should be understood as both as two different kinds of rhetoric, and obviously she thinks that deliberation is more appropriate for a democracy. But she also thinks that that there's something there's some natural pulls towards uh, demagoguery, and that all of us are kind of um, right can can fall into those paths.
1: Right. And she makes the point that, you know, I don't know that I had really thought of before reading this book that we're, we're used to thinking of demagogues. Right. Right. Uh, maybe certain political leaders in the United States on both sides mm-hmm. who you think of and say, oh, they're demagogues mm-hmm. and how they're doing things. But she wants us to think about demagoguery uh, more as about how a culture argues. Right,
2: right. Um, so uh, the demagogue, when the demagogue emerges, that's almost – Um, an after effect. Right. It's secondary to the fact that Mm -hmm.
1: a demagogic culture exists which encourages it. Right.
2: And it's not so much that demagoguery is... Um, so is something that happens to a society it's almost always there it's almost always there within each of us as human beings and it's almost always there within the culture it's just a question of how often and how widespread that demagoguery becomes that undermine, it gets to the point where it just undermines a democratic culture and allows for
1: the emergence of this demagogic figure right, as opposed to, right, exactly uh So why don't we talk a little bit about what the features of a demagogic culture are uh, and how uh, perhaps how some features of uh, our contemporary uh, political and media scene kind of fit into it.
2: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, she says fairly directly that um, democracy is about – reducing everything to a question
1: of us versus them. Well, demagoguery. Right, demagoguery. But uh, as opposed to deliberation, which would recognize multiple points of view and which tries to resist breaking things into an us-them or an in-group and an out-group.
2: Right, Right. and and, um, the other thing that I find really interesting about her distinction is this – Demand on ourselves that we um, apply our rules and objectives consistently, fairly, to our side and to the other side. You know, there's this idea that within uh, demagoguery that um, if you are winning, then that's all that matters. And how you win and what you have to do to win um, is almost – um, irrelevant. You're whole, you will hold the other side to the standards of fairness and, and uh, reasonableness, but you're not going to hold your own side to that.
1: Right. Within demagoguery, there is a special status for the in-group. Is that, mm-hmm. is that a yeah, way of thinking right, about mm-hmm. it? Yeah. I mean, one thing that struck me reading the book is it almost read to me, and she doesn't put it this way, but it almost read to me like demagoguery is the language of populism. Yeah, I think that's fair because there there seems to be this emph- emphasis on kind of demonizing the out group mm-hmm. and and really over celebrating the in group. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. Or giving and, outsized priority and, and recognition to the in group.
2: And there's elements in um, the book that that I don't want I don't want to talk about now, but I think they reflect what um, how both demagoguery and populism kind of stem from com- some of the same. Uh, phenomena going on in the society. Well, she she can explain it better than we can. She can, and she's very good at speaking in a way that is accessible and and short and punchy, right? Just like her book.
3: This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Patricia Roberts-Miller. Trish, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. Thanks for having me. So we are going to talk all about demagoguery today. Uh, you are the author of two books on, on the topic that have come out recently, so uh, lots to unpack here. Thought it would be good to, to start with with a definition. I think if you went up to people on the street and asked them about demagoguery, they might start talking about Hitler, maybe Donald Trump. Uh, but um, how, how do you define it, or, or you know, how should
4: we think about it? I think it's useful to think about it as reducing all political issues, or even all issues, to questions of identity and specifically in-group versus out-group and it's oriented toward providing a, a lot of certainty and reducing um, nuance right and why
3: is is demagoguery bad for a democracy
4: it isn't necessarily bad if there's a small amount of it but i think when you have a culture that is reasoning about everything in that way then what it means is you can't actually explore multiple solutions so you know, what I have to say about demagoguery and politics is pretty similar to what people will say about how a business should come up with a good business plan, um, how people should make decisions about health. It's just better decision making
3: and and you say in your book that uh, demagoguery it's like binging tv shows on netflix while you're on the couch eating chips it's like we we in some way know that it's it's inherently bad for us but yet we can't stop
4: (laughs) yeah well and first i want to say you know like eating chips on the couch and watching netflix is not necessarily (laughs) bad but if that's all you (laughs) do um and i think it's it's really hard because it's so pleasurable and it's you know there are even people who suggest that that Trouncing somebody in an argument um, or watching someone trounce, get trounced in an argument w- releases dopamines. I mean, we really do seem to enjoy that at, at a deep, deep level. It's also more interesting um, and exciting to frame things in demagogic ways than it is to be like, okay, we've got six possible options here and we aren't really sure about any of them. And, you know, that's, that's kind of nerdy.
3: It seems to that our um, media environment today kind of contributes to this in some way. If you think about Twitter, for example, like people are, are kind of rewarded for who has like the wittiest quip or, who, you know, who can troll people the most or, or things like that. So, so how does the, the media landscape fit into the, the, the kind of prevalence of, of demagoguery?
4: Well, we're in an economy of attention. And in an economy of attention, what matters most is wh- whether you are doing things that get viewers and get likes and get clicks and shares and, and all that. And so, yeah, I think that you're – but Twitter is a, is a weird example too because it's extremely difficult to do a good argument on Twitter, one that takes into consideration the nuance of a situation, what other people have said represents the opposition fairly. What people sometimes do is they will – um, you know, click, they'll have a link or something where they've actually made that longer argument. But I feel like you're seeing that less now on Twitter and you get, um, you know, the kind of tweet storms. But even a tweet storm is you're going to get maybe 200, 250 words. You you can't do a nuanced argument in that. So um, and then also I think the way that people are consuming uh, Twitter is all part of the kind of infotainment, argutainment world we're in, where um, argument is seen as a form of entertainment rather than as a form of decision-making. Mm-hmm.
3: So, you know, if you think about going back to that, that us versus them uh, notion you mentioned, you know, I think we all kind of have the, the desire to be part of an us of some sort, right? So, so how do you strike that balance between having that, that sense of us but not going so far into that, that, that us versus them type of, of rhetoric?
4: Well, we have a lot of social groups. We have a lot of potential in groups, and one of the things that we can always do is try to re-identify the in group so it includes the person we're arguing with. So even if um, they're you know opposite of us politically, we're we're all Americans or we're all concerned about the environment or something. But I think also what we can do, since that's asking so much, right? We the tendency to think in us versus them and, and in group, out group is just so deep in us that I think it might even be more straightforward just to try to flip perspective and for people simply to think, w- if I were getting treated the way I'm treated somebody else, would I be okay with that? And if not, then stop doing it.
3: Yeah, and, and you, you talk uh, also in your book about one, one effective way to, to combat demagoguery is to use an argument from the in group or the, the, the group that holds the opposite point of view of, of what you do
4: um, so one of the other things about in-group, out-group is that the in-group is defined very narrowly and people like you are exactly like you or they are they have all of your beliefs and um, and then anybody else is out-group. And so I think it can be destabilizing for demagoguery to point out that the in-group is not that unanimous, that, that the argument is not that clear and that everybody who disagrees with them is not an enemy. So um, so if you do something like point out that the Cato Institute and um, Reason and National Review ha- actually have different positions on whether a tax bill is, is right, um, you may not even persuade them on the tax bill as much as I think that there's an important thing that happens there of pointing out that yeah, there's actually, it's, it's not a continuum. It's not a binary. Uh, sorry, let me go back on that. It's not a binary. Um, you know, why is it that, that um,
3: demagoguery is, is so often associated with these, these single figures,
4: Hitler or, or Trump or, or other kind of you know, leaders, politicians, those type of folks? Because demagoguery is about reducing things to identity um reducing politics to identity. And so if you're thinking about politics in terms of identity, you're going to be looking for a person on whom you can blame bad politics, and it better not be you, right? So I think that's one reason that we really like that notion of, of the demagogue, who is the source of all of our problems. And often, when you have a culture of demagoguery, at some point, somebody will come up. Um, there will be a person who who rides that wave. But not always. So there was a tremendous amount of demagoguery about segregation, say, that um, and pro-segregationist demagogues, but lots of them. There wasn't a single one who who wrote it to the top. There were a lot who got wrote it into the Senate or governorships like Theodore Bilbo or something. But he didn't lead everybody. Um, he, yeah, he just used it. Mm-hmm.
3: And, and you also talk in the book about Earl Warren as uh, somebody who fell victim to demagoguery. And if you know him from the Brown decision, you think he might be the last person right. to kind of find <laughs> himself there. So so what what was that that situation that he was in?
4: One of the reasons I wanted to choose him as an example is I admire him. And I think that we are very prone to thinking that only the outgroup engages in demagoguery. We just have passionate retors. Uh, but everybody can fall for it. And even a person as smart and compassionate uh, as Warren, when people are faced with existential threat, their commitment to the in-group strengthens. And when they're in that situation, people can um, fall for bad arguments, essentially, and bad data. So I think what happened with him was he was really frightened. Uh, the, after, after Pearl Harbor, people who were actually any sort of threat, people who were members of possibly um, dangerous organizations were arrested. Um, And there wasn't really a big push to jail or um, imprison or even, as they said, evacuate in their um, euphemism. Uh, Japanese Americans who were not members of those organizations, that didn't really start until late January. And it's, the best hypothesis is that it's because the war was not going well. And um, so that those are the moments when we're really frightened that I think we're very likely to, to be suckered by demagoguery.
3: What are some strategies, or you know, how can people tell when they're they see demagoguery, or, or or you know, how can they they separate or or pinpoint demagoguery when they see
4: it in the course of things that they're reading or watching or or listening to? So we we assume that demagoguery is going to be um, vehement and we assume it's going to be aggressive, and so we have a tendency to make that judgment on the basis of affect the affect of the, of the person speaking, but also our own. Do we feel threatened? And if we don't feel threatened, then we're not likely to think of it as demagoguery. So I think, but what that means is that you, you don't recognize the demagoguery on behalf of your in-group. Um, uh, and so what I think, again, people have to do is perspective shift. We have to imagine how would we feel about this if we were um, other groups would we feel threatened by it under those circumstances how would we feel if exactly that same argument was made about our group um, how would we make how would we feel about that kind of argument? Would we assess it as a rational argument if it was made on the part of the opposition? So it's always about that sort of perspective shifting I think
3: mm-hmm. and, and you you also say in the book that you spend you spend time crawling around on the internet with extremists so um, are, when you I guess what does that look like? Are you in a position there where you're you're trying to to persuade them to think a different way or just kind of collecting data on you know, how they're
4: making arguments and things like that um, sort of all of the above I mean, um, also, I think what can be really helpful for demagoguery is um, demagoguery almost always relies on um, straw man, and it, but it doesn't look like straw man because um, it represents the opposition as evil and malevolent and we think they are. Um, so we, don't, we think it's a fair representation. And so you always have to go to the source and figure out is that really the argument that's being made on that side? Um, so often, that's one of the functions of it. Is I'm just trying to figure out what people I really disagree with actually think. And um, but then you get the you know like the the real extremists, and some of it is just trying to understand what they're thinking and and why it seems to make sense to them. Um, and then sometimes it's trying to think could could I find some way to get them to change their mind? What are strategies that do and don't work? Sometimes it's not so much for the people who are, that I'm arguing with, but the people who might be watching um, and reading it and to try to get them to see that this is really not a good argument that's being made on the other side or that it's deeply problematic. Sometimes there are other functions like, you know, when I go and when I engage in wiki wars with white supremacists or um, complain about uh, white supremacist reviews on Amazon, then I'm actually trying to get Amazon or Wikipedia to do something. Were you successful at that? Or in the short term, been? yes. Um, but in the long term, no, because they always change it back. Mm-hmm. Um, and also because Amazon does, won't do anything about um, about those reviews. So, And, it, and it, to be honest, too, it, there's, a, there's a bit of a threat. So if I do that, I'm risking getting – I've never gotten super badly mm-hmm. harassed, but I'm, I'm going to get harassed
3: so are there are there issues you think that where it's it's not really worth trying to take the other perspective I'm thinking about climate change for example like that's or the the flat earth movement or you know things yeah. like that where science and like empirical evidence would say that it's kind of settled one way is it worth trying to understand why people might feel the other way to kind of bring them around or get them to consider a different point of view
4: yeah I think it it, it still is with some of those I mean I, I think that that um, one of the things you always have to figure about uh, figure out about anyone you're interacting with is are they open to change on this? Are they open to persuasion? And and one of the problems with conspiracy theories is by definition they're not right. That they've that they have a way of disconfirming of discounting any kind of disconfirming evidence. So that's um, that can just be well that's interesting. Why why do they think that? But um, with with other kinds like with the climate change, it is interesting. On what grounds are they rejecting the science? Um, they're not completely anti-science because they're on a computer, <laughs> so so they do like some aspects of science. Um, and and what you find out are interesting things. Like often the people who um, don't believe in climate change have an almost nineteenth-century notion about what a scientist is and what science is. And that's so if a mechanical engineer tells them that evolution is a hoax, or um, climate change is a hoax, they're like, there's a scientist who doesn't believe in it, without understanding that a mechanical engineer is not actually an expert on either of those areas. Um, so yeah, so sometimes I get really interesting insights into people's beliefs from doing that. And sometimes it's sort of like kicking over a rock and just going, ooh. <laughs> yeah
3: it's interesting too i think you you also mentioned that sometimes people's minds don't change right away, which I think is also difficult in our like instant gratification culture to both kind of take the time that it really really is necessary to engage in in deliberation and to know that yeah you might not get that like quick win that that you're you're looking for
4: um though I really like the book um how I Changed My Mind About Evolution, which is a really interesting discussion of people who changed their mind going from young earth creationists to, to understanding evolution. And and there are a lot of books along those lines, where collections of, of writings of people who've changed their mind. And they describe something pretty similar, which is that there's often a lot of data that they get. Um, but also, it's time, it's sometimes meeting people, um, sometimes getting to know people, there's just a whole long process to it. And so I think that we have to understand that's how persuasion really happens. We also have to be open to changing our mind and there are a lot of um, people who believe that if you admit that you were mistaken, then you are admitting that you don't know anything, that they think in a binary between being certain and being clueless. And so they've now put themselves in the clueless category, and that's terrifying, as opposed to a narrative that says you are open to new information, and that makes you a reasonable person, and that makes you a person who's good at decision-making, the fact that you will change your mind. I also really like the book Super Forecasting, um, which talks a lot about... Uh, the difference between people who, who are going for certainty and the people who are comfortable with estimating how uncertain they are. And I wish that we thought more about it in those sorts of ways. Hmm.
3: Yeah, and you, um, we were we were talking earlier before we started recording about how that you know you sometimes think that d- demagogues and demagoguery are, are absent of fact. Derek Black, the former white nationalist from Stormfront, he knew the history of of the the white race and you know what he viewed as white suppression and all these things, and he could argue the
4: facts as well as yeah. as anybody. For a lot of people, um, demagoguery is, as I said, it's either vehement and it's threatening, but also it's very emotional, and they think that it doesn't have any data, and of course it would never work if it didn't have any data. There's always tons of data. There are tons of anecdotes, uh, often anecdotes of events that never actually happened, but um, lots of numbers. And a, and a lot of times people will believe that if you're, if your numbers are right, your argument must be. So you know, the example I always use with my students is you should vote for me because two plus two equals four. And two plus two does equal four, but that's not actually a good reason. right? And so a lot of the data that you get is along those lines, the data might actually be accurate. But it it doesn't earn the conclusion people are trying to draw with it. Um, Also, sometimes the data is accurate, but out of date or accurate, but not representative or, you know, there are all sorts of, of problems with it. But but yeah, it, again, if you look on Amazon, um, something like David Duke's autobiography gets four and a half stars, and the positive reviews are all about all the data in it because he does have a lot of footnotes. They're not very good footnotes, <laughs> but <laughs> and often they're really irrelevant. But, um, but yeah, people confuse um, data with – well, for one thing, data with facts, but also um, data with truthfulness.
3: And that's really hard to, to even – you know, know where to start to separate. I mean, if you don't have a, a certain background, you would look and see pages of footnotes and say, oh wow, he must really yeah. really know his stuff. Um, So given your your work in this area, all all the time you spent studying these these communities and how people are are talking with to each other and and arguing with each other, how are you feeling about our prospects for for overcoming demagoguery and moving back toward toward a more like deliberative style of of dialogue?
4: I'm worried, (laughs) really worried. I'm hopeful that. At least Facebook is starting to take this really seriously and try to think through, you know, some better strategies that they have. What happens, again, with the facts is I get – if I'm in an informational enclave, I get primed with all sorts of data. And then I can go out and argue that data, you know, with that data all over the place. Um, But what I can't do very well is listen to other people. and, um, And I think that's what we actually need to emphasize is understanding other points of view. And so instead of just relying on the facts I've been given by you know, my in-group to see what the facts are on other sides and to see especially why they reject the facts I've got that I think are true. Um, and so I, you know, I, Facebook's whole model is that you can be in this comfortable enclave with your friends. So I don't know how they're gonna find a way to get out of that. Um Twitter similarly is because it's about the snippy, snappy comment it's it's just not a great place for political deliberation
3: yeah, yeah we we just did an episode on um, civility not lo- not long ago we interviewed a, a scholar from Kansas state. Um, and there we we talked about the kind of hashtag revive civility campaign that's that's big right now and how no one has really kind of figured out how to get at that, how what the right mix is to bring people from different points of yeah. view together in a way that's both good for good dialogue, but also leads to something tangible, right? Yeah. And people also want to have that, like, tangible, you know, something is going to come of this. Um, do you know of of, of any, any groups or any methods or any strategies that, that have been particularly well, useful there?
4: Yeah, let me go back to civility mm-hmm. for a second, because I'm actually very ambivalent about the mm-hmm. concept of civility and of people calling for it. Because civility has so often been used against people. Um, who are calling for major social change. Because there's not really a, pol- a nice way to call for major social change. There just isn't. And, um, and then also, you know, if you're – so civility is often associated with niceness. And if you're angry about a situation, you're not going to be nice. And so if you're going to insist that everybody, everybody be nice, again, you're going you're to just block out the people who might be legitimately angry. Um, if I were in Flint, Michigan and had lead in my water, I would not be nice about it. Um, so I think we also have to think about civility more as being able to represent the other side fairly. <laughs> and being able to listen to the other side, I think that's a, that's a better way to go about it. There are some people who have argued for um, Facebook putting on a respect button so instead of asking that you, somebody like a post you could just say that you respect it and they maintain that this would encourage people to give praise to something without appearing to agree with it i have no idea if that would work but that's kind of interesting um, another is to give quizzes um and so to have sort of to gamify knowledge essentially so that you would have you know basic things about global temperature and how it has or hasn't changed and people could take quizzes on this um, the reason I think that one might work is that an awful lot of people did take the implicit attitude test um, and the political compass test so you know that's that's something possibly that could work Right.
3: Is it the case that people from both sides or all sides of the, the political spectrum engage in demagoguery equally?
4: No. <laughs> um, for one thing, uh, I really would like us not to talk about both sides, because there aren't two sides. There are ten sides. and um, And I think what we miss when we talk about both sides is we miss potential points of agreement, which are generally policy agreement, for instance um... there are a lot of people who are called i think cross-cutting voters and so these are people who um, vote you know who are liberal in regard to certain kinds of policies and conservative in regard to others so for instance they might be people who are um, very committed to a strong social safety net um, so lots of social justice issues but they're opposed to abortion and they're um... opposed to gay marriage um, but they're very much in favor of say reform of prisons libertarians um, are, you know, tend just not to care about homosexuality um, or uh, or abortion, um, but they are totally opposed to the social safety net, but interested in prison reform. Progressives, a lot of them are interested in prison reform. Progressive Christians. Are, so you've got, you know, so if we stop thinking about both sides and think in terms of policies, there are places that we could agree. Those are apparently disparate groups that could actually get together. I think um, what the... Um, what we want to think about is the degree of demagoguery that there is on an issue or the degree of demagoguery in which a particular person is engaged and then also how widespread that is and how powerful that rhetoric is because it's it's one thing if I, you know, do a rant about squirrels um, with my dog we rant about squirrels (laughs) a lot together Um, and, you know, that's not going to have any particular impact but if... um, Trump were to do a rant about squirrels that would probably have a really different impact. So so I think that we those are the kinds of things that we need to take into consideration is how widespread that particular kind of demagoguery is, how demagogic particular arguments for, are for it, and how powerful are the media are that are promoting it.
3: Speaking of, of, of Trump again, or even, even any kind of politician or, you know, someone who, who has a large following on social media, you, you know, every time they post something, you see people commenting and trying to counter what they're saying. Is, is that effective? Or, you know, what is there, I guess, an effective way to get at what you might perceive
4: to be demagoguery from a
3: person who is in, in a position of power?
4: So historically, um, when we've kind of stepped back from the brink on demagoguery, it's because of in-group call-outs. So um, I think it's useful for out-groups to condemn when somebody engages in, in demagoguery, but what is what really matters is for the in-group to say that's not acceptable. And, um, you know, that's – or have you no shame, right? Um, and because a lot of the times the people who are engaged in it um, are – are doing so because they feel that they're representing the in-group. And so if the in-group turns around and says, you are not representing me, that's what's going to have the biggest impact.
3: Okay. Well, we are uh, going to end, Trish, as we always do with our four Mood of the Nation poll questions. I know we've just spent time saying how bad social media is for conversation, but you can think of this like a Twitter lightning round or something like that. So (laughs) um, thinking specifically about um, American politics, what makes you angry? I
4: guess... I spend more time sad than angry. <laughs> um, um, but I, I, I guess if one thing says it, it would probably be the amount of projection that there is um, going on so that you have people who are really fear-mongering and condemning the other side for fear-mongering. I think that, yeah. Then uh, what makes you proud? Um, I, I think that people are worried. I think Americans are Uh, a lot of Americans are actually worried about the state of public discourse and I think that's very American and very great.
3: Uh, Transitioning nicely there, what makes you
4: worry? So I really do worry about informational enclaves. I love social media. I've been an internet junkie since forever. I I was on Usenet, you know, so I love um, social media. I just think that we should understand that it's a problematic place for political deliberation. And it's not ideal for that, and you really have to work with it very, very um, carefully. So, um, yeah, I just lost the which, which word. It was. Uh, worry. Oh yeah. So, I, what I worry about is when is if people think that's enough. If people think that, um, you know, that, that all you really need to do to be informed on politics is stay in your in your very specific Facebook Facebook world.
3: And then finally, what gives you hope?
4: Again, that that people are that people are worried. That there are a lot of people who are worried. Yeah.
3: Okay. Great. Well, Trish, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you
4: for having me.
2: So the one thing that she said that really struck me was um, I was that, struck by a lot of
1: what yeah said. yeah. I all right. Well, let me really, just start with this. I yeah, it was a really good interview. Yeah.
2: It's really it's really interesting, and it's so timely, and it's so helpful for all of us to have
1: these kind of. Uh, analytical tools at our disposal. It's timely, yet I don't think her book ever mentioned our president. No, no. Uh, Even though I'm sure a few people picked up that book with him in mind. I agree with that. I also uh, told her that I – And in fact, she talks at the beginning of the book. I was struck by this because in the the foreword to the book, she says she dropped another project to mm -hmm. write this book after the 2016 election because she felt it was so important. Yet she never mentions the outcome of the 2016 election.
2: Yeah, she told us that she thought that she didn't want the book to be um, uh, obsolete too early. She also thought that the principles she was articulating were, you know, fairly timeless, right? She goes back to the ancient Greeks. And and apply to both parties. Right. So the thing about Earl Warren – She said that Earl Warren— Who we were talking about on the last
1: podcast in a very different context. In a very
2: different context. And she said, I picked Earl Warren because I admire him, which I think is also a really interesting
1: and um, thoughtful decision. Right. But she's talking about Earl Warren before he was right When he was governor. No, when he was uh, attorney general uh, of—I think he was the attorney general of California— during the uh, during World War That's II. That's right. It was before he was governor. Yeah. yeah. And was a strong supporter, proponent of uh, moving uh, Japanese living in the United States into containment camps. Into internment camps. Right. Internment right, camps, right, right. yeah.
2: And so she's trying to explain why this happened. And she said... Oral Warren was really frightened and the war was going
1: badly. It, it highlights a, uh, uh, a social science finding that I, uh, we've referenced on the show before that's really quite important. And that is when people are afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they're threatened. When they feel threatened, uh, they tend to, to uh, be more supportive of authoritarian mm-hmm. types of solutions. Uh, And it might explain some about why some politicians like to try to make people afraid. Right. Because it moves them in a certain direction to accept things they might not. Right. He was scared. He was scared by and for pretty good reasons, scared right? by the bombing of Pearl Harbor and afraid that Japanese living on the West Coast of California, Western United States uh, were a threat to the security of the United States. Right. He and was legitimately
2: was going concerned badly. And so um, that caused him to accept arguments and a style of rhetoric that normally he would not. Right. And which he came later on in his life to regret. Um,
1: now you know it's for example pointing out that there were large concentration there were there were concentrations of Japanese people with Japanese ancestry really, living near uh, factories near factories or right. other kinds of secure sites but of course. Everybody. Everybody lives. There.
2: Everybody <laughs> right. lives there, right? It's yeah. not. It's not. Ah, ah, it's not surprising that you're not
1: going to find a lot of Japanese right. people but, in but, the deserts because. But because he was there. afraid, he sees this right. and interprets right. it in right. a certain right. type of way, which leads him to make a demagogic kind of mm-hmm. argument. And so,
2: when you feel a threat, you are just less concerned with the rights or concerns of other people, right? You you just naturally kind of close in, and um, you're not as concerned about the quality of your arguments. You're concerned about the outcome, and however you get there is is, is fine.
1: Right, or to, I, I think, more in the terms that she's talking about, you become ever more protective of the in-group mm-hmm. and ever more suspicious of the out-group. Right,
2: but what I think is interesting is just how this is a – human predilection that all of us are subject to and and the other thing that about this that I think is operative right now is her is, I just thought this was a really good line demagoguery is escape from the responsibilities of rhetoric which is to say that demagoguery is easy and even feels good right it it, it hits get these dopamine hits because it, it 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 reinforces the idea of us being in the tribe us being the good people the smart ones and the other people are being bad and and not worthy of our respect but if we're going to move beyond the idea that the world is binary us versus them right versus wrong immigrants versus Native right people. it it just requires more work it requires more self-discipline in terms of how we argue, how we how we dis- how we debate with each other, and and I think that is including
1: so- accepting. I mean, I, she made a point that I was really glad she made because I, I, this comes up for me in, uh, in in the both sides kind of mm-hmm. argument that you hear so much. When she said there aren't two sides to an issue, there are ten.
2: Yeah, right, right, right. But understanding that and being able to. Um, accept that in terms of the argument you're making or the argument you're having I should say um, is is just more difficult and it's it's sometimes unpleasant because we have to talk to people who we don't agree with and who have a point of view that's different from ours and so there's a certain amount of discipline to this whole deliberative style of, of rhetoric that she's talking about that I don't think we um, accept or acknowledge
1: or teach. <laughs> so the uh, the framers had real concerns about demagogues. They mm-hmm. they recognized the possibility of them. I, you could argue that's you know, why the electoral college. Was, I was just yeah, about to say yeah. when you read Hamilton's yeah. uh, Federalist Papers about the electoral college, that's the distinct mm-hmm. impression you mm-hmm. get. They they knew this could happen, and 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 so their argument I think is not. You know, and this is of course hundreds of years ago. But it, it's not that we need to impose a certain type of structure to generate this kind. But as with so much of uh, of their thought, we need certain kinds of elites in power who can be responsible in their debate, and yeah. discussion, yeah, I in think their sphere. That's speech. fair. I also think it's. I mean, you know. Well, what's the Electoral College was designed to keep demagogues out. Right.
2: Right. Well, as was you know. Variety of things, right? Yes. The state legislatures electing senators, et cetera, right?
1: Right. there, are multiple, mm-hmm. multiple mm-hmm. systems they have, multiple selection mechanisms mm-hmm. they have, but, but 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 again, the emphasis for them was on the types of people that emerge as leaders, mm-hmm.
2: and on the responsibilities and on that their they responsibilities, they yeah, because they're leaders. But I mean, I think um, Patricia would not, you know, say she would say yes, but that doesn't mean that all of us who live in a democratic society have some of that responsibility as well. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Anyway. And, uh, and I think one of the more valid critiques of the Electoral College floating around these days is it doesn't operate as it used to. It does not. It doesn't operate it as it was intended. It right? never right. did. I, I shouldn't right. say used to. It doesn't operate as intended. Right. as it, In the Constitution. Yeah. Right. We could do a whole nother episode. We should do an Electoral College episode. (laughs) That would would be fun. Yeah, that
2: would be interesting. Yeah. All right. Uh, So, um, bringing this one in for a landing. Thank you, Patricia Roberts-Miller. Thank you, Jenna. And for McCourtney Institute for Democracy, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thank you very much for listening.
3: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State. Our hosts are Michael Berkman, Chris Beam, and me, Jenna Spinelli. Andy Grant is our engineer, and Mark Stitzer is our editor. Additional support comes from Emily Reddy, Shereen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For detailed show notes and discussion questions for each episode, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please consider rating or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.